and welcome to The Cinema Show, where we bring you movie news, reviews, and insights right here on our podcast. I'm Dylan Martin, and ladies and gentlemen, here with me today is more than just a special guest. For those who listen to the now infamous episode zero, I mentioned a few people who helped me build and carry The Cinema Show on the radio waves. She was and still is the heart, brains, and soul of The Cinema Show. Welcome back, the one and only lovely Lori. Thank you so much, Dylan. I'm going to tell you, it feels good to be back. It really does. I I feel the same way. Uh, Welcome back, and I'm so glad you're here today. And on this episode, Lori, what are we talking about today? I'm very excited about this. So this goes back to before the cinema show was even a radio show, and we would just go and watch movies. And I took you to the Alamo Draft House because I had discovered my little slice of heaven, if you will, my little paradise, my safe haven, and it was called Sangria and Popcorn. Yes. Because when you, yes. So when you go to Alamo Draft House, uh, you can get a really good price for a pitcher of sangria. <laughs> and one pitcher will get you a long way with the unlimited refillable popcorn. And that and a good movie, or even a bad movie sometimes, is all you need. <laughs> yeah, the wine definitely helps. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, we really wanted it to be kind of a throwback to the classics. And me, I'm a real big fan of the classics. When I was a little girl, my mom didn't put on cartoons for me. She, I watched what mom watched, and that was usually black and white, you know, anything from Casablanca to The Godfathers. And today we're going to be talking about 12 Angry Men. Yes, written by Reginald Rose. And it was directed the directorial debut of Sidney Lumet. Yes, Sidney Lumet. Ooh, yes, sorry, Sidney Lumet. It's French. Yes. It's French. And we're talking about, of course, the film adaptation of. 12 Angry Men, which came out in 1957. For those who don't know, 12 Angry Men was not only a scripted production, but also originally written for a teleplay that aired on CBS's Studio One series back in 1954, just three years before the film debuted. Yes. Yes. And the only reason that I knew that and the reason it was fresh on my mind is because my son got an English assignment where he had to read the original play, the telescript. And we read it out loud together and then I made him watch the movie. But then you were the one when we decided to go with this, you were just like, Lori, you sent me the link and I watched the telecast. And you were absolutely right. You were like, Lori, you have to watch it. It's going to change so much you know especially because we're theater people and we're so used to that live you know acting and that's all this was and it was just a gem and I just can't wait to get into that one to get into the film adaptation and then the remake of it which was 1997. Yes so yeah let's go ahead and talk about the teleplay well let's just talk about 12 Angry Men as a script and as a very timeless script specifically about Reginald Rose and how he wrote 12 Angry Men I did a little bit of research on it and going just based off the script I love how he he doesn't even name the characters if you look at the script and even throughout any adaptation you watch 
uh, they don't have any names. It's juror number one, two, three, four, all the way down to 12. And I, I think that's genius because the characters themselves, without even saying their names, you know who these people are by the end. And you know their background, you know who they are, where they come from. They themselves, the characters, reveal something that they didn't even know about themselves. Props to Reginald Rose. Just, yeah, it's so great. And even watching it, I found that I was making nicknames for them. Like one of them, I was like, one of them I named Dad. And the other one I named Glasses. And, you know, and that's how I kind of kept up with who was who. You know, one of them I was like, baseball, you know, because every, <laughs> like, baseball tickets. Because you don't remember the jury, ju- juror numbers, mm-hmm. but you do, they have indicative qualities about them. And it just encompasses, throughout all three, though, we have so many themes going on. We have, you know, the theme of racial discrimination we have immigration socioeconomic differences preconceived notions misogyny ageism gender roles corruption within the judicial system itself (laughs) yeah toxic male masculinity (laughs) yes we'll get into that it's it's really brief and uh subtle if you will yes yeah it touches on so many things and uh yeah thank you so much for recommending this because I had never, I've only heard about 12 Angry Men, and up until a couple days ago, I watched each of these productions twice, and on my second viewing for each of them, I had the script in hand, and I was literally following the script as I was watching all three movies again, and yeah, it's timeless. the, The script itself and these productions, well, I guess we'll talk about 1997 later but the teleplay and the 1957 film it's surprising how just how relatable it is especially in the year of 2021 yeah i i was telling you this when i was kind of first mentioning it i was like oh my goodness it's amazing and you know we all know history is very cyclical and it tends to repeat itself and this is just as relevant as when it was written in 1954 if not more so in 2021 mm-hmm And it's hitting so many of the issues that we're hitting on today. It just makes you realize how little we learn over time. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And how we kind of repeat the same mistakes. And, you know, especially now with what's going on in the world, a lot of people like to say, uh, with a lot of issues that come up, especially um, with sexism and gender roles and uh, racism, even the whole Black Lives Matter movement, one of the biggest thing that comes out about it is, oh my goodness, so many things that happened so many years ago. It's not like that anymore. And no, no, there's, it, it's all about perspective and people who don't see, you know, where a lot of this is coming from. It's not that old. And a lot of us have experienced these things firsthand. Um, and this just goes to show how quickly uh, we're all we all tend to jump to conclusions and we make assumptions about others. Yeah, and really quick, I just want to give a brief like uh, I want to give a brief synopsis of what Twelve Angry Men is, just for those who aren't familiar. I highly recommend watching not only the classic film but the teleplay. It's free. You could watch both all three of them for free on Tubi and YouTube, depending on what you want to watch. But Uh, Yes, it's following the closing arguments in a murder trial. The 12 members of the jury must deliberate. And it's funny because most of these courtroom 
movies or plays, they all take place in the courtroom. You think that's where all the drama is. Uh, what comes to mind, a few good men. But no, this one takes, this one, what it does so differently is it takes those jurors that usually go and leave the room and they deliberate. No, we follow them here. And that's the entire, that's the entire play. That's the entire film. You talk about perspective, you have 12 different, very different perspectives. And it slowly unravels into this beautiful ensemble in all three. I feel like you can't do you can't go wrong with watching any of these three but going to the teleplay i love how you have juror number eight and Mm -hmm. when everybody in the room votes guilty he's the only one to say well let's question this i'm gonna vote not guilty even though i'm not fully sure he didn't do the crime he just raises the question that's all he does he just Mm -hmm. he just has that little inkling of a doubt and what transpires is it's beautiful. Hope. He's the glimmer of hope. That's exactly what he represents. And after watching all three of them, it becomes more and more evident, you know, that he is that one little shining glimmer. And the exact words he uses is, I'm not so quick to send a man to his death. And that changes like throughout which, you know, versions that you watch. Because, of course, with the most recent one where the death penalty isn't a certainty. But in the first two, in the teleplay and in the original film, it's just like, or and he's going to be put to death. <laughs> it's black and white. It's either he's going to live or we're going to kill him. Isn't that funny how those two movies are actually black and white and it's dealt with very black and white? Yeah. But in the new one, it's not. And I'm going to point out something very specific to you. It wasn't in the teleplay. Uh, In the teleplay, I noticed that he wasn't in this suit. But in the original film, his suit was white. Mm. And all of the none of the other jurors had a white suit except for him. But in the new movie, his suit was gray, as if there's some sort of a gray between there's a a gray area. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not really we're not going to like rank them or like say which one's better than the other, because I feel like all three of them have they do something very special in their own interpretation of the script itself. Mm -hmm. Like with a classic film, there's things you can do. As it being a film, then you can as a teleplay or a live production on stage, like close-ups or different camera angles to insinuate authority or uncertainty. But going to the teleplay, I there's a slight, a very slight chance that I might prefer it over the classic film, just because it's a theater production and uh, I don't know, I have a closer relationship to theater as opposed to film right now. Even though this is a podcast about talking about films, uh, but <laughs> but very, uh, one very specific thing I, I I took away from the teleplay, and it's at the very beginning when the jurors all come in the, in the same room, and juror number eight and juror number three, they bump into each other accidentally, and that's the first inclination that they're gonna have a conflict throughout the play. I love that so much. It, it's a it's a small little hint as to say. These two are going to butt heads throughout the entire film with that little brief exchange of, oh, they bumped into each other. Sorry, but it's it's clever foreshadowing for me. That's I didn't even notice that, but that's awesome. Yeah. 
And now I'm going to really embarrass myself by telling you the first thing I noticed about the teleplay. What did you notice? Mr. Roper from Three's Company was the foreman. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Mr. Roper. And I looked it up because I wasn't sure. (laughs) And I was like, that looks like Mr. Roper. And it took me a while to find it because on his Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. it's not listed on there because it was a televised kind of play yeah and so he has a list of his movies and his shows but this is not listed on his stuff i had to wait till the end credit and then on the end credit towards the very end it said his name and i was like there it is there it is but mr roper from three's company a young mr roper was in there and i and he plays the foreman he's the young one you know in it and i was just like oh my gosh it's mr roper and that was the first thing i noticed (laughs) Well, let's. I, I think right now is a good point to kind of jump over to the 1957 film, just because we can start comparing and contrasting what three years, oh yeah, uh, has done. But talk about a a stacked cast. Again, I had to do my own research on the cast for the 50s. I'm not too familiar with the environment of Hollywood, but leading juror number eight is Henry Fonda, father of Jane Fonda. And yes. I don't know why it didn't click in my head because the, the last name. And as soon as I made that connection, I was like, oh, look, the eyes. There's a huge resemblance between them two. And huge. what a performance Henry Fonda has along with his ensemble stack cast here. Lee J. Cobb mm-hmm. as, yes. as the I have him under uh, dad. I just had him as dad. Uh, but I have him as father. Yeah. yeah. And um, also... <laughs> I have him as bigot Ed Begley. Yes. His son, Ed Begley Jr., is a comedian actor with the Christopher Guest troupe. Yes. Yeah. And the I have him as jokester, but I guess the baseball guy, uh, Jake Warden. I know he did some stand-up comedy back then. Fedora. That's what I had him <laughs> as. Uh, but yeah, what a, what a great cast here. I will give the film this. They have distinct characteristics. Uh, way more played out compared to the teleplay oh yeah yes definitely much more uh the teleplay is a much more subtle and they have a lot of breaks like for the commercials and things like (laughs) that because of course they had their pauses but one more now that we've moved into the cast okay so it has it listed on there that two of the actors from the teleplay reprised their role for the 1957 version and the two that reprised their role were and I have it written down. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Joseph Sweeney and George Voskovic. And that is a lie. And I had to do some research. Now they were both in the telecast, but there was not two. There were three. Rewatch the telecast. The bailiff in the telecast, he's one of the jurors in the film. He's the one that defends the old man, Edward Bins. And he, yes, he was the one who played the bailiff in the telecast. And I researched it and it is correct, but it's hard to find because he has that small part as the bailiff. But he actually got to play a juror in the 1957 version. Wow. Yeah, it makes me want to rewatch it again. It's funny because I, out of all these, I want to go back to that 1957 film. And most because Joseph Sweeney's performance sticks out to me more than any of them. And I feel like he gets all the close-ups. <laughs> he has the most close-ups in the film. And I noticed that through my second viewing. 
and he played the elder, yes. the oldest one there. And it gave me a perspective that I never thought about. And it's the elderly and how we treat them and how they think about themselves. I was really touched with both his performances. Now that I'm connecting the dots here, it's um, very two two different performances, I would say. He, he brings something different in the film compared to the teleplay. He really does. A bit more heart, maybe. Yeah, I would say so. And maybe and maybe that's the whole um, theatrical, you know, you, you're on a stage and it, it's just natural for you to be more expressive as compared to yeah. a film where you have the camera so close to you. But yeah, Joseph Sweeney, he uh, stood out to me more than any of them, which is telling because that entire ensemble just brings it. Both the teleplay and movie. He did to me as well. And I went looking him up thinking I was going to find like he was going to have some brilliant like unknown things that I hadn't known about that I was going to be able to look into. And actually, he is one of the least accoladed actors on that cast. There are five actors in this cast who've been nominated for Academy Awards in the 1957 version. Five of them. Henry Fonda nominated for three, won one for Grapes of Wrath. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, nominated for two, but never won. Ed Bagley, nominated for one, won one. Jack Warren, nominated for, that's for Dora Guy, nominated for two, but never got one. And then Martin Balsam, the foreman on the 1957 version, yeah. uh, nominated for one, won one. So there are five Oscar nominations and I think three wins. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie itself, it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director and Best Screenplay. Mm-hmm. I don't think it won any of them, but None. three nominations. And you know what's funny, too? I also learned that this movie bombed at the box office. It didn't do very well at all. And, and I think it was in the midst of like musicals and uh, just big budget films that were coming out. And it kind of got lost in that kind of traffic. I know which movie it lost to. Who or what? <laughs> bridge, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Huh. And that one swept that year because it was nominated in so many categories. You're right. I'm not sure exactly how many, but it lost every category to Bridge Over the River Kwai. Wow. And we talk about uh, differences between the, I I guess, like, not even talk about the teleplay anymore. It's more like the script because the teleplay, again, I followed the script with the teleplay and it's, it's right up there for being so close to that script. And I get it. They had to kind of, rewrite it as the film so you get a few like extra scenes that weren't in the original script like when a few jurors have a one-on-one with juror number eight in the restroom which i think one of your favorite lines you said was suppose he is guilty and you talk us all out of it to henry Mm -hmm. fonda and i i love that they added that it's one of those questions it gives juror number eight now a point of well maybe i am wrong maybe i'm fighting on the wrong side here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a struggle the whole time. Cause, and I think as a viewer, especially watching it, um, you go on that journey too. And it was funny to see where you stood along those lines, because I know the, like watching it and from the very beginning, watching it, you're sitting there saying, well, if I were in there, what would I think? Mm-hmm. You know, how would this sway me? How would that sway me? Because some of the points you start to really agree with. And then the second you agree with one, boom, another point comes along and you're you're right on that journey. You're right on that ride with everybody else. And I love how you're still not sure if they made the right decision or not. No. They don't give you a, def- a definitive answer as to whether the boy did kill his dad or not. 
And mm -hmm. that's what I love about it. And you can go back and rewatch the movie and even all the reasonable doubt they give out. You still question it like, oh, maybe he did. There's that slight chance that he did. Again, what I liked about the teleplay slash script, they don't show the one being accused. They don't show the kid. Yeah. In the teleplay, you just see the jurors and you see them in the courtroom. They leave, enter into the jury room. And yeah, I, I like that too. I, I love how you don't really get that side. You don't get to see the person being accused. So you you really don't know if he did it or not. In the classic film, you kind of get that young little boy with the sad eyes and you, you, you kind of already gain that sympathy. Yes. But the teleplay, it's they don't give you that. They make it a little bit harder for you to make a decision. And I love how they keep saying, you know, because they do. They're very, uh, they lead on to the fact that, oh, well, he's that kind. And you know those kind. And they're always prevalent towards violence yes. and drinking. And they're no good. And you really, they never say it, what he is. They, You just see him in the film version. You're right. Not in the teleplay, but in the film version. And all you know is he's brown. Yeah. <laughs> he's young and brown. Yeah. So take your pick. <laughs> and it's... Take your pick. And it's the same with uh, later on the 1997 version as well, too. It's like, oh, he's young and brown. I want to talk about that one. So in the other two versions, it's a much older white male who plays a juror number 10, which I have him down as bigot. Uh, but in uh, the 1997 film, uh, he's an African-American. He is. Formerly of the Nation of Islam because he had a falling out with them. Yes. But he is still Islamic, you know, mm -hmm. himself. And I'm kind of split on whether I like that or not, because it also shows you like, hey, it's not only the kind of stereotype that you think in your head, like, oh, old white man is obviously going to be racist towards another minority. Here it's one type of minority against another. In, I love that. In America, yeah. I loved it. I thought I thought that was a change that kept up with times because I think it it was in the original when they did have it cast that way because and I mentioned it later on about how and I have a a star next to it because I had written it down interracial racism yeah and it's even within people don't understand everybody's like oh racism it's not even it doesn't really exist anymore people are always talking about it it's like there's there's even racism within races yeah you know light skin you know people who are lighter skinned as compared to darker skin you know uh i remember you know when my dad was little uh you know he lived on the west side of town the bad side of town and it was pre predominantly hispanic and mexican but there was a difference in hispanic and mexicans that you were because the darker you were they were like oh they're indio they have more indio blood in them they're wild yeah they're not spanish mexican they're Nate, right. Yeah, they have indigenous native Mexican roots. Yeah, that's very true. I, I think my only problem with the 1997 film is compared to the other two performances before, I didn't feel as if the the most current version of this movie, he didn't really have that type of um, resentment towards himself like Ed Begley did. Kind of Ed Begley yeah. kind of like realizes he, he kind of showed his true colors colors in front of everybody and I feel like he kind of showed who he truly was to himself for the first time to the point where he kind of scours to the corner and just breaks down and just shuts himself down you want to know something very funny about that speaking about his role and the actor himself he was born Michael T. Williamson after he became an actor though he changed it to McKellity and he's 
And he's very, very specific about how you pronounce it. So Michael T. Williamson. <laughs> His mama called him Michael T. I'm going to call him Michael T. So yeah, yeah. I, my only problem with Michael T. is that he didn't have that type of resentment towards himself. He kind of just blew up and just stayed mad at everybody else. Whereas the other two, you can see that reflection they had within themselves. So that's my only, I would prefer the other two over his performance just because of that. Um, but again, that's a personal preference for me. Well, I loved the drama of the first two and him realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm a monster. But I appreciated the reality of the new one because they never realize it. <laughs> yeah. He would just sit back. It was it wouldn't be reality for him to that quickly years and years of anger and resentment and you know, it it wouldn't it, it to me it's not realistic that he would be like, "Oh my gosh, in a matter of 1 hour, <laughs> I am a monster." <laughs> so, I got that one a little bit more. I thought it was more realistic. Oh, and and that was like Bubba Gump. No, Bubba Gump. Because that was Bubba. The actor is Bubba. That is, not him, is it? From Forrest Gump. Swear. I looked it up. I can't believe that. That was him. My goodness. It was him. I did not recognize him at all. I know. I actually have it next to his name. Um, <laughs> McKelty Bubba. McKelty. All right, Michael T. Take it easy. Yeah, well, let's talk about 1997 then. You talk about realism, it being the most realistic. It's a very distinct choice. What I was getting was early Law & Order season camera work where everything was kind of on steady cam. It was just handheld, not really on a tripod or anything. Uh, it felt like an episode of like season one, season two of Law & Order. Bum bum. Um, well, okay. So as opposed to the 1957 of Lume, the 1997 director... William Friedkin, he won for best director of The Exorcist. Oh. So I'm like, this is the guy who directed The Exorcist. <laughs> and 12 Angry Men, of course, was done much later. But I was just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't see any remnants of that <laughs> in there. <laughs> not at all. Like style wise, not not even storyline. But you know how you have directors and style wise. Mm hmm. And I just didn't see any similar styles. But I thought that was interesting because I looked him up right away. And I was just like, oh, he's an Oscar winning director. Okay, so the stats for the 1997 version. We have three Oscar nominees. One winner. One won an Oscar twice. And one who was the first actor to ever officially refuse the Oscar. Who was that? That was George C. Scott for Patton. And you know how you were just saying uh, earlier when you were talking about the earlier version and you were talking about how uh, we can't compare any of these performances because they're all unique in their own way. Yeah. That's exactly why I was I thought it was so interesting that you phrased it that way, because that when I was reading up on it, that's exactly like the reason he gave the Academy. He said that he believed that acting is a per very personal art and he didn't believe that people could be judged against each other for an award. Oh, wow. So he, yeah. And they said, you know, of course he won the Oscar, mm -hmm. but he refused it. I guess I'm not comparing performances here, but I, I do think George C. Scott's monologue at the end, you know, about him and his son, 
it feels so much different compared to Lee J. Cobb. Yes. And I'm going to be really honest with you. Up until like this past few days, I thought that George C. Scott was in the original as well as the new one. Because the actors look so much alike. And then, though, then I started Googling young pictures of George C. Scott. I'm like, oh, no, they don't. (laughs) After I kind of looked it up. (laughs) I think maybe in my own little head, I just wanted it to be so, so badly (laughs) that I just kind of went there. (laughs) And being juror number eight, and I didn't give him a subtitle because he's eight. He's he was the one that to cause trouble. Him being played by Jack Lemmon here, comedic legend over here. I think it was a very different vibe compared to Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. It was a different dynamic. I mean, obviously, in the late 90s, they're both very seasoned actors in their career. So they give a very different type of performance. I would even say... They do. It's kind of like, again, you watching a, a production. And that's how I'm starting to watch these movies as, especially when you get remakes... Uh, it, it's more of a, well, this is a different type of production. Let's see how different they do it. I mean, you could see five of the same plays from five different productions and you could get something different out of it. That's what I appreciate about the one from the 90s. Oh, absolutely. And Jack Lemon, it's undeniable. I mean, eight Oscar nominations for Best Actor throughout his career. Um, and, you know, going back and forth, I had to ask myself because I thought about the question. I was like, and it was definitely between Fonda and Jack Lemon for which one I preferred as juror number eight. But then I looked like at what I was writing down. And I looked at my notes and my notes told me exactly who I preferred because you know how we've been giving everybody nicknames. Yeah. And when I wrote down Jack Lemon, I wrote in parentheses Fonda. Mm, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's Fonda for Fonda, me. Fonda out of the three, uh, Fonda does stick out. Definitely. Fonda. Yeah. Mm. It's, <laughs> can we bring up the uh, spoof you wanted me to watch? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So talk about spoofs. So Amy Schumer, who I love as a female comedian, and I know she's not everybody's cup of tea, but hey, neither is 12 Angry Men. When I started talking to friends that we were going to actually be reviewing this movie, everybody's like, oh, why that one? Everybody hates it. I'm just like, oh, geez. <laughs> and, you know, I think everybody hates those 10 minutes that any like freshman film class or communications class like shoves down your throat and tries to wrap it up as this great film and you need to watch the thing in its entirety. Is that the switchblade scene? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's always the switchblade scene. Oh yeah? Boom! And you're like, he has another knife! But no okay so there's a great spoof and there are several spoofs you can't see an episode of south park or family guy or any of them where they haven't tried to spoof 12 angry men because it's such a spoofable film if you have seen any series especially comedic series uh they're bound to do a 12 angry men spoof episode uh one sticks out to me is malcolm in the middle uh (laughs) uh, there's a part where the mom has to do jury duty and she's the one to cause trouble everyone wants to just be done with it. And she's like, wait. And that's her whole subplot. Because she doesn't want to go home to her kids. I think that's it, right? Is that it? I'm pretty sure that's why. I would assume I don't so. blame her. <laughs> As a mother, I would assume that would be why. Oh, oh. But I'm going to talk about the smooth. But then we are not. Do not let me forget to bring this up. Because I hadn't mentioned to you this before. And I had an epiphany last <laughs> night. 
But do you know one of the greatest spoofs of this, besides the one I'm about to talk about, is Son-in-Law with Polly Shore? Oh. <laughs> no, not Son-in-Law. Jury Duty. Jury Duty with Polly Shore. Not Son-in-Law. Jury Duty. Is that a movie? Remember? It's a movie he did where he's a poor guy and realizes if he goes to jury duty and they take it to trial and they can't agree on something, they get paid by the day Mm. and they put him up in a hotel. (laughs) So he argues this whole case against the man who's clearly guilty. But then by the end, you find out like, oh, no, he was innocent. And Polly Shore is this like wonderful savior of a man. (laughs) But the entire time it's the weasel trying to get free lodging, (laughs) you know, and it's a horrible Horrible. I'm like, oh my God, the premise of this is 12 angry men with the Weasel. <laughs> but I digress. My favorite spoof, though, <laughs> is Amy Schumer, inside Amy Schumer, 12 angry men, where 12 men have to go inside a room. And this is something I think I've actually heard these conversations. <clears throat> Dylan, <laughs> Jackson. <clears throat> But I've heard the whole conversation about whether Amy Schumer is appealing. Wait, hold on. Okay, okay, okay. So she did... Uh, Appealing in her comedic... In general. Yeah, yeah, okay. Not the other... Not the other way, (laughs) just in general. But she took it to another level. And it was 12 angry men have to go into a jury room and they have to decide whether Amy Schumer is bangable or not. (laughs) Whether they would do her. And they use just as much ferocity and intenseness arguing points and there's one there's one juror who hangs up he's like i would bang amy schumer i'm not a fan of amy schumer but it it was funny and you should have led with jeff goldblum being in the skit you should have led with that he is he's amazing you didn't lead with that yeah because i was like "Ah." always lead with jeff like i guess i'll watch it and i saw the thumbnail and i immediately like oh jeff goldblum yes i'm in I loved uh, their use of their own switchblade in that in that little skit. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. What was it? What was it, Dylan? Pray tell. Uh, <laughs> I'll let the folks at home research <laughs> that specific skit. Watch it, folks. Yeah, please watch it. And speaking of that, it's that cultural impact that this movie eventually did have. You know, it wasn't really financially successful in the box office, but look how it's standing the test of time. I think it's like in the top 10 top rated films on IMDb. So, hey, that's something. Yes. And, and I don't get how people can just say, oh, 12 Angry Men. It's a very important film for everyone to watch. I feel like it's required <laughs> to watch. Uh, now more than ever. Exactly. Absolutely. There's a part in it, like we said before, there's the one character who almost immediately is a, they start, there's the one character talking about, oh, these kids and they come from the slums and everybody knows they're, they're no good. And then you have one of the jurors who says, you know, I grew up in those slums. I played in those slums. I ran around the garbage. He goes, I probably still smell like it. Can you smell it on me? And that's one of the most powerful scenes immediately reminded me of my father because he would always preach about never forgetting where you came from. Like you may not be there anymore, but this is where we came from. Yeah, the the quotes in this movie, it's funny. Every time I get to rewatch any of these interpretations of that script, I'm always looking forward to certain moments, specifically of the dialogue that Reginald Rose chose for these specific characters i mean just how great that he has so much confidence in his script that he didn't have to give his character names just going based off the dialogue itself you know who's speaking those words 
how great everything's set up and constructed. Speaking of which, juror number eight is an architect. And I love how he himself, how he constructs everyone to come on his side by the end. How, how, yeah. how everything's laid out for him. Uh, everyone in this movie and their roles that they play, it's uh, even past the people that have, that have been casted, it, it's how it's written. And that, I think that's what's the most important here, that, that script. You can, it, it can only progress from here. Even that 1997 film, how diverse that cast yeah. is compared to the other two. And going from here on out, uh, there's so many ways you can interpret that script. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they actually did take some liberties. I noticed with the new script in 1997, they added some dialogue in there. Uh, the judge in the 1997 is a female. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. So I was just like, 12 angry women, but with a woman now. <laughs> and she's the judge. But if you notice that on the earlier movie, it's a lot more, the judge is male, white, and he's a lot more blasé about telling him everything to expect. Like, he's kind of done this a thousand times. Yeah. Whereas in the 1997 version with a woman, she's so like, this holds so much gravity. <laughs> and please know what you were about to do. And you know what, though? And talk about pulling in an Oscar winner for that one. Because she, she won the Oscar for Dances with Wolves. Mary McDonald. And I was like, wow. So they not only just got a, a chick, but they got like a really talented chick. <laughs> And just the differences and the reason the differences are you have to remember and, and it made me think a lot about this because one of the most jarring thing is to and you ask yourself the question, you know, could this be made now? Would you see this now? First of all, even the 1997 version, I'm like, why isn't there a woman there? I can't help but like ask myself and I know it's 12 angry men. I guess you'd have to change it to 12 angry people but uh (laughs) but uh but yeah when the script was originally written this was 1954 Mm -hmm. uh it was pre-civil rights movement um we still had segregation jim crow laws and you know women didn't uh sit on juries until 1957 women were finally allowed to sit on juries, which is the year the movie came out. So I'm guessing there must have been, that must have been like a double impact for that movie to come out the exact same year, 12 Angry Men, the exact same year that women were given the right to even sit on a jury. Mm. But they didn't even pass the right for women to sit on juries until 73. Oh, wow. So in most states, yes, in most states, women still weren't recognized to sit on a jury until 1973. Until the 70s. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's mind-blowing. Exactly. And I was just like, because I was like really wondering about this. And I was just like, so back then, this was, I mean, this was a hot topic at the time. This was huge. I kind of want to give a very quick nitpick. It's not really a complaint. It's just a, an observation that the 1957 film made. And it comes down to the only woman that was in the courtroom, supposedly. And it's an eyewitness. And... And in the 1957 film, they make it a point to call out this woman's appearance. And it's very Mm -hmm. telling because in the original script and in the original broadcasted teleplay, Die Witness was only wearing eyeglasses in the courtroom. And they made it a point, they pointed it out, and moved on. But in the 1957 and 1997 films, and I guess this was when it came into... I'm only assuming it's when it was adapted to screen with the script. 
but they made the whole inclination of the indentions that eyeglasses make on a nose. And it went from that to like <laughs> the woman's appearance. She was wearing clothes that were much too young for her. She was dr- trying to dress like a woman that would be younger than her. Her hair was dyed. Vanity, thy name is woman. And that's why this man is, <laughs> is gonna die for your vanity. As timeless as I say the 1957 movie was, that that's the only thing I, I kind of scratch my head at. Because even the teleplay just said, hey, she was wearing glasses. Let's move on. I know. We can't get any breaks. The misogyny, though. that And it takes you back to it. But speaking of misogyny, though, while the original telecast might not have gone so much into the vanity of our smear women who care way too much about what we think, they did have these lovely little commercials <laughs> that were implemented. And it was three. Three commercials, to be exact. <laughs> you want to talk about the commercials? <laughs> I would love to talk about these commercials. Please. Okay, so these commercials, what were they? Westington? Uh, yes. Westington? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So, apparently, they make appliances and all sorts of things. Like, you know, they might as well have been saying, like, I think I messaged you this earlier. Like, uh, sure, there's these 12 angry men, but we're not forgetting about you in the kitchen back home, little ladies. I'll give you the iron. I'll give you the refrigerator. But I'm not giving you that dishwasher and let me tell you why if you get a dishwasher he goes oh look dinner's done and everybody's gathering in the living room to have a good time but somebody needs to do the dishes if you had this dishwasher you could put your dishes in there and you could go in and join the party ladies he goes you could go right into the living room and this is the part they have a picture and there's a graphic And they insert an arrow pointing to the woman and they label it, you. You. That's me? That could be me? And I wouldn't even have known it if they didn't point the arrow. I want to know what CBS was thinking. Were, Were they thinking that the husband and wife were watching 12 Angry Men and this is the time where... The men go to the restroom or get a snack and the women are just there on the couch like, oh, look, something for me. <laughs> was, was that what they were? Ah, it's commercial break. I'll be in the bathroom the whole time because, you know, the prostate. <laughs> hey. And then boom, refrigerator commercial. Ooh, it's a dream come true. Did you really have to pull out the colon card? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> you got us on that one, women. <laughs> Okay, but you know what I do have to kind of give some props to? Did you see the art? Yeah. For the, yes. So they ha- it was one picture, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was like very art deco, the way that they kind of drew. Like really men. abstract. It was like a storyboard. Yes, very abstract. And I was just like, I really liked the art on it. And I didn't get time to like look up the artist or anything like that. But um, that I really did take appreciation in. Oh, and in the original, did you notice how they messed up the knife? Because it was supposed to be an entirely different moment there at the end. The guy grabs the knife and he comes up to him at the end to give it back to him. And he's supposed to flick it out and it got stuck. <laughs> That's live theater, baby. That was live theater. And then afterwards, he had trouble getting it back together again. And they did the close up on the face like, what's going to happen? But because it got stuck, it wasn't as, yeah. you know. <laughs> 
but they stayed in character and they went with it. But I was like, oh man, if that would have worked, it would have looked so it cool. It looked great. I, I kind of do like, I prefer the 1957 version where you have Henry Fonda helping Lee J. Cobb out, you know, giving him his code and they kind of walk out together. I, I like that. I like that. It's a great script. And, you know, I really have to, I did a little bit more research behind like how it went from the telecast to the feature film because you know that a studio did not uh they ended up having to um nobody was originally interested in it it was henry fonda really henry fonda saw the telecast and he read the script and just absolutely fell in love with it he cashed in every favor he had and he produced it himself um and he put his own money into this and they the stipulation was is that they had to shoot it in 20 days or less wow so this movie was shot in exactly 20 days on all on henry fonda's money so uh because that's how much he believed in the project itself and i just thought that was beautiful um everything about it to me the first you know thing that comes to mind for me is david and goliath when it comes to the story to when it comes to the movies uh even when they were talking about how it was nominated for three awards but lost all to bridge over the river Kwai, which was the big war movie that year and you know i thought about it and i was just like man if this was happening now would this be like an a24 film you know, this is the little indie film Definitely. that has to, yeah, that has to measure up to these Titanic of films, you know, and it really was back then. It was the little engine that could. And just addressing so much, I think it was, I think it was exactly what we needed for the main messages of it never go outdated. These are all issues that we're dealing with today, especially today. With our Black Lives Matter movements and with our Me Too, uh, me, hashtag Me Too movements, um, with the political temperaments that are going on in the world now, how we all sit back and tend to look at life from our own perspectives and we make quick judgments about people. Uh, when people don't agree with us, we're immediately offended or taken back by this. And it's a reminder that when we stop talking at each other and start talking to each other, what incredible things can happen. Yeah. On the surface, people might see this episode and be like, you know, why 12 Angry Men so random? But and I kind of thought that, too. I mean, I was glad that you brought it up because I've never seen it and only heard the best. But only after watching it so many times, it's very very important to where we are right now in this time and place as a country. And yeah, like you said, it's perspectives all coming into one room in one nation. And instead of attacking one another, which they do and we do at times, it comes down to them having to make a solidified decision, whether they Mm -hmm. have different views or not. That type of attitude that Henry Fonda's character has, it's He's not even sure himself if he's right, but he convinced 11 other men that couldn't be more different than him, and they all can decide on this one thing. And I feel like that that's unity. That's it, it really is an American classic. Even the immigrant himself says, you know, it's a beautiful thing that democracy allows us 12 men to come here and talk and make a decision, and that shouldn't be taken for granted at all. Yeah. And what a beautiful message, you know, in the beginning, everybody's very upset and they're 
looking around and like, hey, what's wrong with you, man? Maybe we can help him figure out why he's confused. And he's looking around. He's like, do you really believe he's innocent? Do you really believe he's guilty? And he said, I don't know. But can we just talk? Yeah. And that shouldn't be such a hard question to ask. And that shouldn't be such a hard thing to do. But it tends to be throughout history. It's tended to be. And even today, that's one of the hardest things to do is to just calmly talk and look at perspectives and look at ideas. And once you do, once you just settle down and say, come on, like, can't we just talk? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what things come out of it. Yeah. I mean, eventually all those men swallowed their pride and even at times contradicted themselves throughout the process. And I feel like that's, that's called being a human being. You know, we're not perfect. And I need whoever's president right now. I keep forgetting who, but they need to make it a requirement. (laughs) Did Kanye lose? (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. That's why I'm announcing my presidency for 2024. And this will be my first executive order. A copy of 12 Angry Men will be issued out to every single American. Don't ask for the stimulus checks, but 12 Angry Men is coming your way. (laughs) First off, I want to thank... Our lovely Lori, you are the sangria to my popcorn. Thank you so much for being back and just being you. Yes. Uh, where can we find you? You can find me uh, on Twitter, lovely Lori. And also you can follow my page, The Snake Pit. We're uh, under construction right now. We're revamping it. You know, we kind of shut down a little bit from the pandemic. Uh, and also you can just find me slipping deeper and deeper into insanity as I'm chasing around my three children. <laughs> I can't wait to see uh, what you do with The Snake Pit. And of course, your loving family. I miss them. Tell them I said hi. I will do. And most importantly, I want to know what everyone else thinks about these movies, these productions. Let me know if you haven't watched it. Please watch it and let us know. It'll change your life if you haven't, I swear. Uh, Let us know on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages at Live and use that hashtag Live. Give us your questions and comments about this episode or maybe you want a shout out. Either way, you're all part of the panel as much as we are. This is The Cinema Show. Remember, all films are subjective and it's all about perspective. Have a great day and a better tomorrow.